Welcome back to the Simpleton Podcast, the most popular podcast of JP2, Pope Benedict, and probably every Pope that ever was. Probably. Probably. Just a probabilistic statement there, but you can judge for yourself. Hoping they all made it. (laughs) All right. We have uh, three major things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about some listener um, issues sent in by a listener that was kind of interesting. We're going to talk about something that, you know, in the Catholic faith maybe has different names, but something that existentialist philosophers call bad faith. Um, And then we're going to talk about the newly exhumed nun in Gower, Missouri, by the Benedictines here in Missouri. And we've got some issues with that that should be interesting for most people. All right. Let's start with this listener issue. Um, Okay. Laura, how about you read what the listener wrote us? I will do that. Um, Well, before I get to the meat of what he wrote us, um, he did send us one uh, very uh, interesting and valuable piece of information, which we can link in the notes. And that is that Thomas Aquinas bot already exists. Right. We were predicting the need for a catholic ai and someone Mm -hmm. has created it and i'm hoping to try to get that person on the podcast so they can better explain to us what's going on in the field of ai yes and and what it would mean to have a catholic ai i've only asked thomas aquinas but one question and that was late at night when ryan was frying himself some eggs i said should ryan fry himself some eggs late at night and Thomas Aquinas bot said it might be immoderate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Wow, it's like it actually like functions a little bit, huh? It was, it was, it was a little bit. It was a few sentences, and it was, in fact, what you think Thomas Aquinas might say about it. So okay, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm gonna read most of it going to summarize some of it okay so this listener um considers himself to be a catholic anarchist and pacifist um in theory and practice he's uh not a perfect one he says um and has uh not been voting ever since he turned 18 um but he is now i'm going to start reading he's starting to question the validity of not voting especially in opposition to overwhelming forces that for one reason or another do not pursue the common good. I am also beginning to realize that groups which do not presently pursue the common good vote at each and every chance they get as power begets power. I am also questioning the level of privilege that is involved in choosing not to vote. In the tradition of Dorothy Day and saints like blessed Franz Jägerstarter, I do what I can to take back control over myself in the political realm, and for a long time that has involved using the tools available to me in order to help my community rather than placing my hope in the political realm. So he says he realizes that voting is like a very small action, and there's like a lot more potential change can happen through his like actions and and charity and aid in like everyday life. Um, and he pursues some of these in his work and life. Um, but I'm going to go to the end of his comment here. Um, with that being said, although my vote may be as though I were picking up a pebble off of someone who was being crushed by boulders, I still recognize that I have a responsibility given to all of us by God to discern and implement decision making that is centered around what Jesus Christ demands of us. Um, so he's asking for a response um, as he tries to develop his conscience on this matter. Great. 
Um, mm-hmm. This is interesting because it's coming right after this podcast is coming out right after we interviewed the JP2 Catholic workers. And mm-hmm. um, they had experimented, uh, particularly Spencer had experimented with anarchist thought. Um, I don't know where he is with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just to help people who are so far away from this mindset get where this guy's coming from, I think what the idea is, is that uh, wouldn't it be great if all interactions were voluntary and not forced? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's meaning by anarchism, I think, is like, can we create a world where you never force anyone to do anything? You um, are creating a completely voluntary community. Mm-hmm. Right. And you could be kind of like create kind of a socialist world or a libertarian world that way. Um, and this dovetails with pacifism because you're never forcing anyone, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's where he's coming from. And in that idea, you'll get people who are like purists and mo- motivated by this who say that by voting, you are participating in a um, structure of power that you don't believe in. Mm -hmm. And you are no longer really pursuing your goals by voting. And you're also like, in a sense, like uh, collaborating with the devil, in essence, because you're like collaborating with the system of force. Yeah. And it's like inevitably every politician is going to represent something that you don't stand for. So it's like you're going to vote for someone imperfect. And does this sort of sully your soul or, you know, right. Right. And wouldn't it be better if we all just represented ourselves and had no representatives? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I also think what's kind of funny or not funny, but interesting is at the end, he goes like, and I know that voting is taking a pebble off someone's back is getting crushed. And it's like, sometimes it's not like, I mean, often it's not not because Mm -hmm. like, like when you lose your vote, like if you like if you vote and your side loses, you didn't take even a pebble off, you know, just to be real, you know. Yeah. So. all right. I have strong opinions on this. What are your opinions, Laura? Um, I would say so. I I'm like very sympathetic to this view. And I think Ryan and I have both sort of experimented with the, these thoughts, you know, throughout our voting uh, life. Um, but I, I've become increasingly more and more convinced that like lay people like belong in the trenches you know and there's something that's like not neat and tidy and clean and like we're just kind of called to wrestle with this and do the best that we can and like hope in god even if we vote for someone imperfect you know um i I am not sympathetic with this and i know that maybe at different points in my life i have been i think this is just making voting something it's just not you know like and i feel like the first thing you get is like if you're in some civics class or some type of patriotic idea that like always vote it's your duty to vote it's your whatever to vote that's also making something voting's not you know like it's giving it just way too much power you're not a bad person if you don't vote you know and like if you just don't know enough about it or you think the vote's not going to matter like if you're like like if you're in dc Uh, We used to say that the election was always the primary. Yeah. Right. Like, like the primary for mayor was actually the election because the Republicans were never going to win in the actual election. So if you want to have any say, you voted in the Democratic primary. Right. Right. right? So, like, if you are like a hardcore Republican and you don't think there's even a better or worse Democrat on the ticket, why are you voting at all? You know what I mean? And 
it just doesn't, if your vote doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And telling yourself it's got some eternal importance and get yourself out there for some moral reason, I think it's a waste of energy that you could be spending on some other good project to help people. You yeah, know? that's not, that's not my, I don't think it's of eternal importance or even immoral to not vote. Well, I know. Well, now we go to yeah. the reverse because now, uh-huh. now you have this group of people who are like, it's of immoral to vote. <laughs> yeah. Because now you're participating in this like bad structure. I also think they have made voting something it's not. Yeah. You know, I just think we need to think of votes very pragmatically. Like if your vote helps, if it would be important, you should yeah. probably get out there and vote. And yeah. probably your vote's more important at a local level. Yeah. You know, like it, there, there's almost a case that you should vote in your homeowners association or in your neighborhood block watch or something like that before you vote for the president. Because yeah. that might have more influence. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, totally. Do you think there's a case for like, you know, I I've lived in Maryland and in D.C. that like um, not not for governor, but, you know, for um, Maryland, always for president goes blue. You know, D.C. is like ninety nine percent. blue, Right. Um, I do you think there's a validity validity in just voting to show that there are opposing views, you know, if you think you're well, once again, that's like a pragmatic rationale for the Mm -hmm. vote. And yeah, Yeah. I don't have any like I can't tell you it's right or wrong, but I I want it to be pragmatic. Yeah. You know, I want you to be in that realm. And therefore, you're not beating yourself up about it, because frankly, it's not that important because there's not that much power in your vote, Mm -hmm. you know, and um I like I also think that like say we had a very unjust system. Say 10 people were picked to make all the de- to decide the next president and Laura, and Laura you're one of these 10 people. I would say you have an incredible duty to voice your opinion there and not opt out of the unjust system because mm-hmm. you're literally getting to choose the next president and yeah. you better yeah. for the good of us all do a good job, you know? Right. Now if you thought by opting out you could actually bring the system down, Maybe that is that's also, once again, a pragmatic consideration. Yeah. So I guess I think and then I want to talk about this pacifism idea. I I think what I want to say this, though, that what I'm trying to say is like this idea that you shouldn't like sully your soul. I don't find that like it's just like daily life is not like that, you know, like we don't live in monasteries. Um, I think God gave us the Ten Commandments to give us a bright line standard on not sullying mm -hmm. your soul. And yeah. um, all this other stuff, you have to start using your discernment. And people would yeah. like to have firm rules that um, yeah. mean they don't have to use their discernment. But yeah. that just does not be seem to be God's will, mm-hmm. you know. And with the yeah. pacifism thing, which is where this is also coming out of this like idea of like not wanting to cooperate with a violent entity, you know, mm-hmm. um, I've lost all sympathy for this. You know, like <laughs> I used to be very sympathetic with this point of view and. Now I just think like, you know, we're in a church. I want to make two points. One point is we're in a church that literally has had religious orders that were fighting men, like the hospitaliers of St. John, the Knights of Templar, right? And we're in a church that has had pacifists, right? And today the pacifists are popular and we have no fighting orders, right? I think both those extremes are probably not that great. Right. You know, but like we are not a church that has holistically condemned violence, you know? And then if you look at the words of Jesus and you look at the whole testaments and the Bible and all the great, you know, stories in there and everything like that, there's a lot of violent stories. There's even yeah. soldiers who go to Christ and ask him how to be good soldiers. He does not tell them to quit being soldiers. 
Mm-hmm. He tells them, you know, don't take bribes, don't extort people, don't give false witness. You know, so it's just like Jesus is not going out of his way to make a nonviolent point. The Bible, I just don't see how you get nonviolence out of the Bible. And yeah. the church itself, like the magisterium, I mean, it's been extreme one way and you can find people today who are extreme the other. And I don't think that needs to be at the heart of the faith life. And I find yeah. this even in polite company, like I was in a a group and we were listening to a good talk. And during the Q&A session, somebody said, well, you know, of course, um, violence is always bad, you know, and they said it as like a throwaway statement, like, of course, yeah, we can dismiss that yeah, uh, or accept that you know, proposition. And I'm just now like, no, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) violence is not always bad. Christ came to cause division here on earth, you know, and to split families and things like this. And I'm not promoting like anyone go be violent, but I'm just like, um, this weird idea that this radical pacifism is actually the way it doesn't make sense to me. It feels like veganism. It feels like when people like look at vegans and think, Oh, well, I'm sure someday we'll all be vegan. Because that is like the future of, you know, moral eating. And it's like, I don't... I, don't. I reject that. <laughs> I feel like that's the way we treat pacifists right now, and I think it's wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you have anything else on this, Laura? No, I do think... Um, it's obviously, people treat elections like they're our main hope, and that's a good point he brings up that, that you know, that's not where our hope lies. Right. Like so, my my yeah. main take with the listener would be you're on the right track. Personalism is yeah. where it's at. What you do locally is where it's at. And God bless you. And that's what you need to focus on. And this mm-hmm. it, all this energy about like voting, I think, is wasted energy. Yeah. Right. OK. Yeah. Great. All right. Now we want to talk about an idea that we talk about in our manual. And it's kind of a central thing about being a volunteer at a simple house. And that is the idea of bad faith. And how we as Christians are trying to get out of bad faith. So bad faith is a pretty generic concept. And it's from that term is from the existentialist movement. And it would have something to do with like, like we know that like science say does not give you the why of existence. And we also know that science can't explain everything. And there's some open questions there. Right. Or someone will think that science does explain everything, but they'll also think they have a soul, you know. And so they'll have these two ideas that are like contradictory and they're tempted uh, or they'll live their life for very long periods of time, maybe forever, without ever trying to reconcile this contradiction. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is what the existentialists, I believe, would call bad faith, living in bad Mm -hmm. faith. Like they have two contradictory systems they're working with and they don't care to rationalize them. Right. And this is related to like this kind of Catholic idea when JP2 says, be not afraid, right? Mm -hmm. There's this idea that we are all actually afraid of the truth. Yeah. Um, It's it's, also like the cave, you know, um, Plato's cave, you know. Does Plato say in that cave idea that you don't actually want to know the truth or that you're only seeing, I know he's saying you're seeing shadows of the real. He says you're seeing shadows. And then when you turn around and go to the entrance of the cave and you see the light, it's blinding and you want to turn around and go back. Exactly. That is Mm -hmm. the same concept, which is also the same concept you see in the Old Testament that whoever Mm -hmm. looks on the face of God cannot live. Mm -hmm. Right. And what they mean by cannot live is the false self in you cannot live. Like it will be killed out of you. And we also have to know that in the Old Testament, like Moses does talk to God face to face. So there is like this kind of like tension here. 
you know, that, yeah. that you're, you're meant to turn towards the truth. But when you turn towards the truth, there's a cost. And the truth actually is a threat to you. I feel like like a very practical way. It's like when you want to be mad at your spouse and you don't want to examine what fault you might have because you know that they're wrong, you know. <laughs> and maybe you, you enjoy being mad, you know, and you yeah. know that if you like do a, a bigger, deeper dive, you'll you have to really lose stick your it madness. to them like you want to. Yeah, <laughs> right. And yeah. this is also an idea. So this idea is just this should be like a basic human fact that we're all mm -hmm. well acquainted with, but I feel like we don't spend a lot of time with it. It's actually yeah. the fact Karl Marx is always using when he's like, you are so biased by the like um, uh, interests of your group that you can't even see the oppressed side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's, it's all the same idea that you are living in bad faith where you mm -hmm. actually are avoiding the truth. Yeah. Right. This is different than the idea of paradox. So paradox is when, there are two truths that seemingly contradict, like the three and one of the Holy Trinity. Mm -hmm. um, so that is just an apparent contradiction that you're not going to be able to reconcile, but it's not actually bad faith. Bad faith would be much more like, um, you know, having a self-image of, of calling yourself a Catholic, but then also being very prideful, you know, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. like in, in, in a way, if you want to pretend that sin has any like rational component to it, it always lives within bad faith because like yeah. the very first action of Adam and Eve, like hiding in the garden, like mm -hmm. they are playing hide and seek with an all knowing omnipotent being. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you would never rationally choose to play that game. Right. You've already lost <laughs> when you started hiding. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they had to somehow convince themselves that this was a good idea. Right. Yes. Or like sin yeah. is often portrayed as like, you'll know that like, this is what makes you happy. Like virtue. Um, not sinning is what leads you to happiness. And then a sin comes before you and you think, oh, I need that. That is what will gratify me. That is what will make me happy. And you might know better. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you choose at that moment to believe this lie. Right. So always this like bad faith idea is around, you know, and what you're trying to do is like weed it out of you. Like I well, for example, here's another example. Um, we had a missionary come who uh kind of was an environmentalist i think he might have been a pacifist and he also was a radical christian right mm -hmm. and the longer he kept kind of and he felt like i am all of these things like these things are all very important to me mm -hmm. and the longer he kind of lived with these ideas the more he started seeing you know jesus has some tension yeah. with the environmentalism yeah. with the pacifism Right. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, there's some compromise to those ideas from Jesus. Right. Yeah. And he ended up saying, I've come to realize that Jesus is the bullseye and there's things close to the bullseye, like environmentalism or pacifism, but they're not Jesus. Right. Yeah. That Jesus is the primary. Right. Right. And that's like an example of kind of waking up out of bad faith. Like when you're living with these like three ideologies and acting like they're all of eternal importance. Yeah. They're not, you know. Yeah. There's that tension in you. Okay, we kind of wanted to preface that because sometimes religious people tell themselves stories that they know aren't true. You know, I see it uh, in the Protestant church. I've heard the term glory story where you like go on mission. And when you come back from mission, which could just be one week, you know, in a foreign country or something, uh -huh. uh, you then tell people what an incredible impact it had. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. And you're, and they expect you to tell that story and you're meant to tell that story and you're not meant to say I was deeply disappointed or I saw these things that troubled me about the impact I was having. Or like we had a prayer session and everyone said they converted, but the next day I saw they were all drinking or, you know, I mean, you're not meant to like, um, like tell that story. You're meant to tell what's a glory story. Yeah. Right. And it's funny because it's like the glory story just supports someone else going back, going back to the mission the next year. Right. And it, and it kind of gaslights me. people because it's yeah. like the honest person who goes and comes back is like, it just wasn't this way. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and this isn't just in church. I remember this was like going out in college. I remember like going out with a group and the things were too loud and we couldn't talk and we were kind of frustrated. And then the next day we'd be like, no, it was so awesome. We went out last night. And, it was, and I was like, no, you were there. I was there, man. I was there. Yeah. I, like, it wasn't that awesome. We kind of didn't, we weren't enjoying ourselves that much. I was like witnessing us not enjoy ourselves. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah but like yeah, you yeah. still are telling like the glory story of the great Friday night, you know, epic Friday night. You right, had, right, right, right. Um, okay. So this like within religion, this kind of looks like pious lies. Right. Right. Like it's like, we wish this was true and we say it's true, but who knows? You know, yeah. And I I think like when you call it gaslighting, it's right. And there's like a lot of spiritual danger and harm that it can cause. Like, I think people might do this because they think they're building up other people's faith. But there's just like the level of manipulation can be really harmful and like mess people up. Um, And ultimately, the truth builds faith and mm -hmm. authenticity builds faith. And this does not. Right. And I'm thinking like we've also. You see ministry that's one touch ministry where someone goes and talks to someone and they come away and write a story about it, about how that person was totally changed and how it's such a special experience. And I believe that every loving experience is of eternal importance Mm -hmm. and is a special experience. Yeah. I don't believe that if you go talk to a homeless man for an hour, that likely tomorrow he's living as a Christian. Right. Right. And that's the type of story we often tell and you see ministries yeah. tell and mm-hmm. it's not true. And yeah. it's, it's what I would call a pious lie, mm-hmm. you know? All right. Having said all that. So our goal at simple house is to try not to be that way. And I think the mil I've, I've admired the U S military in some ways, like they'll do like an operation. And after the operation, they have to sit down and say, what went well, what went bad. And you're mm-hmm. not supposed to like spare anyone's feelings. Yeah. And we do this at Simple House too. Like after every major ministry event, we sit down and even if it was a great success, we'll say, we'll first go around and say, everyone say like what you thought was really cool or how you think it went. Yeah. Now let's all say something that could have been better or anything that you actually thought failed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. through that, I think you get better and better ministry. Yeah. I've been in groups where we weren't allowed to say what was failing and we weren't allowed to change how we did yeah. ministry because in a sense it was like ordained. Right. And if you right. said anything bad about it, it was like you were doubting the founder or you were doubting the ministry or you didn't have as much faith as everyone else, or you didn't have the eyes of faith to see the great good it was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the devil is, I think that's just, um, I think it very, I think that's very bad. Yeah. To the point I, I think yeah. the devil's involved. <laughs> yeah. And we, we, this is like when this kind of uh, recap that we do of ministry, we call it reflection. And it's like, you know, done 
with prayer as a part of like our kind of ending prayer. And, you know, we talk about how to try to give people feedback that is like useful, you know? Um, but yeah, but I, I think it's, it's one of the most important things we do, you know, like we never do ministry and not have reflection afterwards. Um, Right. And if you have a missionary who all the time's only saying positive things and won't own anything that went wrong, you yeah, start, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, you think something's wrong. You have to really work do some work then. You know, that's yeah. when things mm-hmm. are it's much better to know something's wrong and know what it is than to act like nothing's wrong. Yeah. Okay. That I don't want to end on a bad note there, but the question that we have as Catholics and Christians in this spiritual life is how do you wake up out of this? Like how do you get yourself more and more grounded in the truth and that's also, you know, saying we go over in the Sabas training, but it, it has to do with prayer. It has to do with being humble. It has to do mm-hmm. with submitting to the magisterium and to the church. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, these are all kind of the guides of this, but there's no yeah. shorthand way of it. There's no easy, like, here's five steps if you follow your good, because our whole life as Christians is walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. that's, not, that's not something I can just do once and put it on autopilot. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, just this ongoing exercise of not being afraid of the truth, you know, <laughs> and um, it, it's like if you're always trying to spin um, everything like more positive, you don't have like faith that God is working in the nitty gritty, you know, or that reality, the reality that God has created is good enough, you know, um, and um, I think there can be, you know, the opposite problem where you're bitter or angry or resentful, you know, when you're always like seeing the negative, um, you know, also a problem, but it's like, not just like balancing positive and negative, you know, like neither of those views are like, kind of like a pure heart seeing what is true. You know, it's not, it's not like balancing those two things. (laughs) I think what you said that was like pure gold was when you're like, it's actually, um, shows a lack of faith when you, Mm -hmm. when you, won't be honest about the shortcomings because you're, you're not having this faith that God's actually working despite the shortcomings. Yeah. All right. We're ready to switch subjects. Sure. All right. Um, All right. There has been some great news that has been taking over tons of uh, stories throughout the press um, about Mm -hmm. the Benedictine nuns of Gower, Missouri. All right. Here's the basics. Um, the basics are they exhumed a body. Um, they were surprised by the that it was not more corrupted than it was. They exhumed the body because they were preparing to build like a new altar in the church or something. And well, they wanted to move the body to the church. Yes, they wanted to move the body inside the church. So mm-hmm. they exhumed it. It had been buried for four years. They were surprised about how little deterioration there was, both in the clothes and in the body. And then there's been tons of media stories about it being incorruptible. Um, the nuns or an, an example of a delayed corruption or incorrupt body. It's not perfectly incorrupt. Um, we'll read you exactly what the nuns have said about it. How about we start there? How about we say what the nuns okay. themselves? Now, now let me tell you where okay. we got this. This is from a, a printout that was next to the body before this became a national story. So I, if the story is changing over time, like the way people are talking about it, that's from the, the, this is the era of the story that this is from. It's before it hit national news. This mm-hmm. is the printout that was next to the body. All right. Um, it's, it's like a whole sheet long, but I'm going to read like the important details, I think. Um, 
All right. On April 28th, the Feast of St. Louis de Montfort, uh, the sisters exhumed her, the body. Uh, the top had caved in at the time of the burial. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to go back. So she she was buried without embalming, and she had been buried in a wooden coffin, um, and there was a puddle of water at the bottom of the grave. So given those details, you would expect, you know, some deterioration. Okay, so um, the top had caved in at the time of the burial, so dirt had gotten in and lay over her remains. Not only was her body in a remarkable preserved condition, her crown and bouquet of flowers were dried in place. The profession candle with the ribbon, her crucifix and rosary were all intact. Even more remarkable was the complete preservation of her holy habit made from natural fibers, for which she fought so vigorously throughout her religious life. The synthetic veil was perfectly intact, while the lining of the coffin, made of very similar material, was completely deteriorated and gone. The careful process of cleaning and removing the dirt and mold began, and the body began to lose volume since the initial exhumation with exposure to air. Thus, some shrinking and darkening took place. All facial features were visible, but as falling dirt had caused damage, especially to the right eye, a sister carefully crafted a wax, ma a wax mask to cover the face. Great. All right. There's two possible problems with this story, and we're going to go over that, but I want to say that Laura and I are rooting for the nuns, and mm -hmm. we very much hope this is everything they think it is. And they're very mm -hmm. much... I, I really loved this description they gave, um, which is kind of goes into the first possible problem. Uh, the description they gave of the deterioration right there, uh, I think sounds fair. I, I have no reason mm -hmm. to doubt them in any way. Um, I think that's a description that someone who's not Catholic would not think is an incorruptible. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, the body was shrinking, all these other things. You know, it's only been four years. I just don't think that someone outside the church would consider incorruptible. That's but it's someone that who wants to believe it might think it's incorruptible. Yeah, I I think that the standard for what incorruptible has meant in the past has not been like I remember the first time I think it's I saw Teresa of Avila's finger and I was like, that's it. You know, like I was not impressed, you know, uh, and so then I learned what incorruptible meant. And it's not like the body is in perfect, perfect shape, but it's not as decomposed as you would expect. Now, it turns out that there are multiple natural reasons why this could happen to anybody. And the church no longer considers this like a qualifying miracle for like sanctification. Right. I've also found it interesting that like, you know, the Virgin Mary never corrupted. Right. And her body was assumed into heaven. Mm -hmm. And this idea that if you don't have original sin or if original sin is weak or something like that, then why would your body die and corrupt this way? And I think there's this interesting kind of rationale for mm -hmm. why the miracle might be fitting, you know. But um, I think what's I think we have to go into the history of this particular group of Benedictines to kind of understand yeah. why some people are really gung ho about this and why some people are more skeptical. Yeah, I want to say one more thing. Again, I don't think you and I are like against like, like I, I think there have been some miraculous incorruptible, you know, like I, 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 this is not because we disbelieve in that. But I also want to say that like when the church is examining like a cause, the, the church takes like um 
like a skeptical stand like viewpoint, you know, like they're going to have a doctor come and examine the whole thing. They're going to have this other scientist, like they're going to try to find a natural um, cause to explain. That's true. I think we're so far thing. before thinking that she has a cause right now that like, I, I don't know how important right. that is to yeah. worry about. I just, I just bring that up because I think this is very exciting and I think you can both be excited for it and also have a little bit of skepticism at the same time and that it's not wrong. Right. Let me go into the history of what we know here. So the history of this order is not well understood. It's a little bit, I don't know if you want to say in mystery or what, um, but it <laughs> seems almost like it's hidden a little bit. So this group was founded in Pennsylvania in the Scranton Diocese, and it was founded with the with the more traditional Latin mass, and that's a big part of their whole identity. That's their lead foot on everything. And therefore, people who are really for that traditional Latin mass would love this to be a very convincing miracle and would love this because it very would, it, all, it feels like it validates that movement, right? Mm -hmm. Which I don't think God gives miracles like that, but like whatever, you know? And I am, I, I, Personally, I'm for startups. I'm for religious startups. I'm rooting for people who start things. I'm rooting for this order. Uh, mm -hmm. Even if I'm not a big proponent of the traditional Latin mass, I'm just rooting mm -hmm. for them, right? Okay, so they started in Scranton, which, by the way, what's funny is, small aside, I know of three other orders in Pennsylvania that were starting in the same period of the 90s. Mm. And I know them just because I knew people who literally went and stayed with them, either as a novice or just went out there and lived why is so and and whenever i i don't even know the names of the orders because they would just come back and tell me these stories and sometimes they were kind of weird stories you know of mm -hmm. what was going on out there in pennsylvania and it was just like is this are you guys all telling me about the same order or are these all new orders and you're never saying philly or pittsburgh you're always saying pennsylvania which makes me think it's not philly or pittsburgh you know yeah because like, you would say yeah. why is the backwoods of pennsylvania giving birth to all these orders yeah <laughs> but anyway it's interesting all right pennsylvania so still has like big enclaves of like cultural catholicism like the polish catholics and the italian catholics and whatever i don't know if that's related but maybe you know other observation or maybe there yeah. was a bishop who just was way more open-minded about allowing all these startups you know yeah. so this group starts in 1995 they're prom promoting the traditional Latin mass and at some point, they get sideways. So the word I have from primary sources is that they kind of got sideways with the bishop in Scranton, right? I don't know how. They said I don't sideways know. in the primary source. <laughs> yeah, they, they acted like there was a problem, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. I don't know if the problem was a simple problem, like he wasn't helping them become a recognized religious order, or if the problem yeah. was like he actually was like, hey, I don't like Thought what you're problem. doing here, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know what level the problem was, but... At that point, Kansas City had a kind of um, famous bishop, Bishop Robert Finn, and he was famous for kind of being um, uh, a symbol of the conservative church, right? Mm -hmm. And he'd taken over an extremely liberal diocese, and he was kind of a symbol of the conservative church, so much so that like he was doing the um, national prayer breakfast as the like guest of honor in Washington, D.C., which is just kind of weird that you take a weird, you know, mm -hmm. not... I'm not calling him weird. It's weird that you just invite a random Midwestern bishop to be the guest of yeah. honor there. But that's how kind of symbolic he was of this kind of conservative movement in the church, right? Mm -hmm. um, he's the one who 
um, invited that group of nuns to come to Kansas City, and he gave them conditions. And his condition was uh, that they needed to either be under the direction of an established religious order or to accept an established religious rule and not have their own unique way of doing things. Right. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't know if you know the answer to this. When you say Bishop Finn invited them or when we say any bishop invited any order, does that mean that they asked the bishop if they could come and he said, OK, I invite you or that Bishop Finn like reached out to them and said, hey. So I have no evidence either way. I imagine the way these things work is that the church is not actually as big a place as it looks and people mm -hmm. just have mutual friends and they're like, hey, these sisters need a solution and Bishop yeah. Finn hears about it. It's like, let's talk. And then they have a talk and they're like, hey, it'd be a good fit. Come on out. Yeah. I think, I think okay. something like that's the way these mm -hmm. things go down. I don't yeah. actually know. Um, okay. So it comes out though and requires them to like kind of take on like another, uh, like a more established rule, right? Mm -hmm. Or to go underneath another order. And essentially, they're put under, they become Benedictine, or if they were Benedictine, maybe they were kind of like a rogue Benedictine, became much more formally Benedictine on the arrival mm -hmm. out here, right? And then within a few years of transferring to Kansas City, the same bishop, the conservative kind of iconic bishop, removes the mother superior, the founding mother of the order, right? And I mm -hmm. believe her name is Mother Teresa McNamara. And no one knows, well, I don't, no one I've talked to has ever told me why he yeah. did that, right? And I would like to pause there to say there's a lot of reasons why people get removed uh, that aren't related to sex abuse or anything sexual, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Just because yeah. we're so used to that being the reason. But there was another group called the Intercessors of the Lamb that was shut down at about the same time that Sister uh, Mother Teresa McNamara was removed. Uh, and they removed, there was a woman leading that and they asked her to leave. And the, I heard then that like the reason was some type of spiritual manipulation. Like she'd kind of violated some rules as far as like learning what people had said in confession or something had happened like that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like she'd stolen all the money or abused a bunch of people, but, or sexually abused people, but like there yeah. was some other type of abuse that gets you removed. So for some reason, uh, Mother Teresa McNamara is removed. And this is where the story kind of changes, you know? So mm -hmm. when they came to Kansas City, the foundress was kind of portrayed as Mother Teresa McNamara, right? Mm -hmm. And there was one other sister with her from the very beginning, and that's the sister that was exhumed, mm -hmm. right? And so in a way, you know, they're both founders. But in another way, uh, Mother Teresa McNamara was kind of considered the foundress, at least when they came to Kansas City. Yeah. Like they're both founding members, but she was kind of the foundress, right? Yeah. Now the order's portraying it that this is their foundress and they make no mention of this like history that they had this like kind of strange thing happen, right? Yeah. I want to like paint this with like as charitable a brush as possible because like, Startups, particularly religious startups, have strange things happen. Yeah. Right? Like Simple House is of Saints Francis and Alphonsus. Mm -hmm. By the end of St. Francis's life, he decided to leave the Franciscans. That is a very embarrassing thing for Franciscans. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that yeah. means that St. Francis thought they weren't Franciscan enough, mm -hmm. or there was a coup in the order that was changing the rules that St. Francis didn't agree mm -hmm. with, and he protested and left. Mm -hmm. Right? 
he might have come back in at the very end, but like, it's just a weird story, right? Yeah. It's not a clean yeah. story of your saintly founder yeah. and what happened, right? Yeah. And guess what? Same thing happened to St. Alphonsus, which I thought when I realized that both of them, this had happened to, I was like, oh, this is scary. Uh, <laughs> but like St. Alphonsus had a coup happen in his order that he was standing up against. They literally went to the Pope, explained the situation to the Pope, and they got the Pope to kick St. Alphonsus Liguori out of the Redemptress. Yeah. Also a bad story if you're a Redemptress, but they don't hide, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think it's kind of cool that they don't hide it, you yeah. know? And I just don't know, like, I, like, if someone comes to me and they had, like, a troubled past, mm-hmm. right? And they're being a good Christian right now. And they talk to me about like the troubles they had. I like have a ton of respect and look at them almost like as an authentic authority. You know what I mean? Like, you know, but if they come to me and act like they never had a problem before and they're doing great now, it's like kind of like seeing someone on Facebook who's just only putting the veneer of the good stuff. Right. And you just lose trust in the whole thing. You know? Yeah. I like don't know how on track or anything really almost about how they are right now, but the le- the legionaries of Christ whose founder was disgraced, you know, it's like front and center on their website. Like this horrible thing happened. But I know order. that a lot of members of the legionnaires didn't want to disgrace him because like, if anybody doesn't know, like their situation was, um, he was sexually abusing seminarians and, and he, he had, had a secret like family, a family and a whole nother yeah. life, you yeah. know, so he did, he needed to be disgraced, right? Yeah. But I remember but that. I, I think this is like like that they're admitting to it, putting it front and center. I think this could be like sort of the saving grace for the order, you know? Right. Right. Like it, yeah. And yeah. what's what we don't want to say though is that there's anything that dark here. Like I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Sister or Mother yeah. Teresa McNamara, you know. So I don't want to like act like it's anywhere close to the Legionnaires, but it is true that they're not hiding anything that happened, at least yes. not now. Yeah. You know? Well, the the thing that it, yeah. They they shouldn't be afraid of it because it's like almost impossible that it's as dark as the Legionnaires, you know? What'd but, you say? Um, like, it's almost impossible that it's as dark as the Legionnaires. You know? Right. Yeah. But, it's almost as bad. Yeah. 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 Um, but the um, other issue, though, is like there's this Catholic tradition of hagiography. Yeah. And I think this is so bad. And I um, I like St. Alphonsus is my confirmation saint, patron saint. Mm-hmm. And I had read multiple biographies of St. Alphonsus. I'd read mm-hmm. like the eighth grader, you know, easy yeah. reader biography. I'd read the like academic biography. And one day I was walking in a monastery library and I saw a really nice old biography from like mm-hmm. the 1800s. Right. And I took it off the shelf and I was very excited because it had all those beautiful like cut plates mm-hmm. and like illustrations. And, and I start reading it and it was all like wrong. It was all yeah. like saying like, and his mom was perfect, as perfect as the Virgin Mary almost. And then his dad was perfect as this. And then his yeah. whole early life was perfect. And then this was perfect, right? And I just knew factually from these autobiographies that what this biography was saying was wrong. And I don't think the guy who wrote it thought he was lying, but he was like yeah. telling pious lies. It was like wherever he didn't know something, he would fill in the most edifying idea possible yeah. about this, right? Yeah. I told my friend about this, like, uh, about the founder and she said right away she was like it sounds like you know like just medieval saint writing you know right um like this is what you did and she was like there's just one big problem 
this isn't being written for like medieval man. <laughs> well, but even then it wasn't right. Like this is why in the 20th century you had all these theologians who didn't believe in the virgin birth. Yeah. Because they'd been right. around people who told pious lies. Mm-hmm. Right. And therefore, when you read the Bible, it was very easy for them to imagine that the virgin birth was a nice, pious lie. Yeah. Right. And that's the damage this causes. Yeah. Right. And it it really screws people up. Um, and it also screws up people kind of within an order because, like, there's things they're not allowed to explore or talk about or say because it's kind of taboo because they're not being very forthright about it. You know what yeah, I mean? And I, I think this is like how 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 people can have kind of a mental break. Like there's a short circuit because you're like, everyone says this. I know this is true. I know this is true. And your brain is like, this is not what is happening to you. You know, and it's just like short right. circuit. You explode. You have a mental breakdown. And, like, and this it's is from like gaslighting. Abuse. That's the whole it's idea. Abuse. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of this is that this causes like a gaslighting type effect on people. And then they lose faith in themselves or they lose faith in you, you know? And I just think there's a lot better story to be told here, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I don't know the story. I just think there's a lot better story to be told. So at least for like, ever since mother McNamara left, you can find them start to reference this nun as the foundress. So yeah, in a way she is a founding nun at the order. I don't think it's right the way they're portraying it. Um, or at least the way they're publicly portraying it right now. Yeah. So the the two kind of problems with the story are it's being sold, not always by the sisters, sometimes by the outside press, that this is like an, the incorrupt foundress of their order, mm-hmm. you know? And one problem is a lot of people aren't going to consider it incorrupt. Mm-hmm. And the other problem is that it's not necessarily the foundress. Right. Like that's a stretch to use the terminology that way. So I don't know that it's the type of thing that should be a pilgrimage site and on public display, because I think you I think it could come back to bite you. Yeah. But I but if you are edified by this, I'm not sure you're wrong to be edified. I mean, go for it. You know? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think you and I have both witnessed a lot of um, people be hurt by getting really excited about a Catholic figure who was growing in popularity or something and then have be so hurt when there's like a scandal you know like and it was like they put too much in it so yeah i i think it's like beatified but but leave room for you know the thing to unfold either way you know right i think that what we've seen a lot is people like think religious order is even better than it is yeah. And like have a very high idea of it and then mm-hmm. like get inside of it and really right away realize that that outward projection is not what's going on inside that order. Yeah. Well, I'm very suspicious about religious orders that try really hard to give a perfect a outward appearance, outward appearance. Yeah. Right. And and I want to go back to that idea that it this is like a lack of faith in God, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Like what you want is you want an order that says we had problems and we have problems, mm-hmm. but this is a great school of holiness. And here's why. Yeah. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. you don't want a problem, a religious order that says we didn't have problems. We've yeah. always been great and we are great. And it's a great school of holiness. And here's why that religious order is usually set up for trouble, you know? Yeah. And I think there's just a better story to be told 
about this and maybe a, I, and I'm hesitant to promote this as a public miracle personally. Um, but I do have friends who have been uh, impressed by it, you know, and I'm all for them being impressed by it. I'm, I'm not trying to contradict any of them or say it's kind of like signs when you meet a charismatic Catholic and they tell you about a healing they received and they start telling you about it. And you're like, oh, I'm not positive. <laughs> you know, so whenever there is a new religious thing in the church, be it St. Francis or be it the Benedictine sisters at Gower. There's always something new about it, strange about it. If you think about St. Francis, like here's a guy who's stripping naked. Here's a guy who's doing something no one's done before. He's literally breaking from the monastic way of life and bringing the whole friar way of life into existence, along with St. Dominic and the Carmelites, but all happening at the same time. But like this is new. This is strange. This is dangerous in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to respect the bishops and the pope who didn't squash a St. Francis. Yeah. Right? Yep. And whenever we're dealing with a new religious order, they're new because they needed something new to happen. You know, they they have some unique thing yeah. they're trying to do. It might look weird. Uh, I'm all like for being as understanding of that as possible. Right. Yeah. The other thing I think is happening is I think it was I think we needed to talk about this a little bit because I think thoughtful Catholics shouldn't be silent if something doesn't seem totally right. And. I think bishops maybe should be silent because they just need to see it play out. Like when things aren't totally yeah. right, they do just like end at some point, you know? And yeah. if the bishop thinks it gets totally out of hand, they need to intervene. But besides that, they need to allow as much diversity within the church as possible. Right. I just think that there needs to be a more balanced discussion of this. And I think the Catholic media's, I think the Catholic media's portrayal of this has not even, has even been more uh, sensational than the sister's own portrayal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's by the way, it's not it's covered in other like um news stuff too. It's not just Catholic. Uh when mm -hmm. I heard my friends talk about it, I was like, I, I don't think that's the foundress. Like I feel like I knew people yeah. who knew the foundress, you know? Yeah. And I tried to ignore it, but then I saw it on my news feed and then my sister so Tan Books came out with a cool book a while a long time ago. This book's got to be old. It probably was a reprint of an old book. This is what Tan does. But like it was called The Incorruptibles. Mm. And my sister does not read many Catholic books. She okay. loves that book. And it's the story of all these saints throughout the centuries and all the crazy things that happened. Like there was kind of like a madness about Incorruptibles in the Middle Ages where people would like go on pilgrimage to them. And then like when they would kiss the foot, they would like bite off the toes of the incorruptible yeah. to like steal, steal the toes, yeah. you know? And so there's just all this like crazy, like wild west, yeah. weird behavior, you know? But, uh, so she just thought that book was great. And that book, like just talked about all that, you know, it's yeah. very interesting. So, um, all right. So once it became such a big story, it's like, can we just like walk it back a little bit and pause? Cause there's yeah. a couple questionable things. All yeah. right. So thank yeah. you for listening to the Simple to Podcast. We just we cover everything unpopular on here, mm -hmm. everything that you don't want to listen to. So if you're a fan of that, come back for more. <laughs> <laughs> and as you know, if you send us a comment, it's likely to get read on air. So yeah, right, good to see you, Laura. If you want us to mention you by name, let us know. Right, we struggle with that. 
Like we say, if you yeah. kind of say something from the heart, we tend not to say your name. If you I correct us, it, but... uh, we like to say your name because you get credit for correcting us. All right. <laughs> okay, out. see you, Clark. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.